You are listening to Bossable Podcast. Before we get to today's episode, I'd like to tell you about Panostaya. Panostaya is an investment company that buys majority stakes in Finnish SMEs and then works together with the leaders to develop the company to the next level. They'll help the company build a strategy for growth and then provide active support, tools and systems to make that strategy happen. The leaders of the companies Panostaya is involved with form a community. I actually did a talk at one of their community events and looking at the agenda, I kind of wish that I could have attended instead. Because the community events are focused around peer-to-peer discussions, but with additional support from external coaches, speakers and facilitators. If you're the owner of a Finnish SME and want to change the trajectory of your business, contact Panostaya. Go to P-A-N-O-S-T-A-J-A dot F-I slash E-N and start growing. Welcome to Boss Level, probably the best podcast you're currently listening to. My name is Sami Honkonen, and on this episode, I'm interviewing Gary Hamill, one of the biggest names in the field of strategy. Gary started working with strategy in the beginning of the 1980s and has since released a bunch of groundbreaking articles and books on the topic. For example, the terms strategic intent and core competency were popularized by him and his colleagues. Gary was visiting Helsinki for Nordic Business Forum and made the time to sit down with me. A big thank you to Nordic Business Forum for connecting us. Without further ado, let's step right into it. You're probably one of the most well-known business thinkers and strategists in the world. So how did this journey start for you? Wow, well, that goes back (laughs) a few years, I have to say. You know, I found myself in uh, 1983 at the London Business School. I was a brand new faculty member. And my PhD actually wasn't in strategy. It was in international business. And uh, the first term there at the school, uh, I got asked to step in and teach a strategy course, which I hadn't expected. I obviously knew a little bit about it, but it really wasn't my thing. And so luckily, that was just about the time that Michael Porter from Harvard had started writing about strategy. So there were a bunch of cases. There was a great textbook and kind of he saved my ass there, uh, if I can (laughs) say it that way, the first year. Um, But I really started to think about strategy. I, I thought that we were really only focusing on one out of three interesting questions, and maybe not the most interesting question, because uh, those of your listeners who kind of go back and have that history of strategy, they know that the question that Michael Porter and before him a lot of industrial economists had been trying to answer is, why do some companies earn more than others? How do you explain the fact that some strategies generate above normal returns? Yep. But it seemed to me the two more interesting questions were, first of all, where do new game-changing strategies come from? Right. Once once you see one, you can explain it and go like, oh, that's why Microsoft was so profitable for a time or Google today. But where did those initial ideas come from? And the other equally interesting question was, 
if you have a strategy and it has reached its sell-by date, it's kind of running out of steam, how do you change it when it's so deeply embedded in systems and processes and mindsets? And so really that became uh, uh, the focus for me for, for, for much of my career was trying to answer those two questions. How do you build new game-changing strategies out of thin air, if you like? And if you're a very successful company and you have to reinvent yourself, how do you uninstall a great strategy that's no longer producing a great return? So how do you feel that strategy kind of evolved? So let's say that Porter was about positioning. What do, what do you see as the, like, the next wave that came after Porter? Well, I think there were a couple of things that hopefully I had a little contribution to. I mean, when, when I wrote The Core Competence of the Corporation back in whenever it was, I can't remember, with, with C.K. Prahlad, uh, you know, we were saying that you need to think of the firm not just as a portfolio of products and how those are positioned in a marketplace, but you have to think about the deep underlying capabilities that allow it to do something that nobody else in the world can do. And I think that idea has stood the test of time very well. If you think about Apple's success, for example, I would argue that Apple has a deeper and wider portfolio of deep competence than anybody else in the world. I think another change which came with my, my book in 2000 called Leading the Revolution was really thinking about the goal of strategy as being architecting industry revolutions, changing the rules of the game. So how do you produce an endless stream of strategic innovation? What kind of organization do you need to do that uh, versus you know hoping that once in a decade, once in a generation, you come up with a breakthrough idea? How do you program an organization for breakthrough ideas? So those are all kind of twists and turns in the journey, but you know, all credit to Michael Porter. I wouldn't have gotten through that first uh, term without him. And, you know, we're all standing on, on his shoulders for sure. Yes, definitely. So how about in the future? For example, in his book, The Advantage, Patrick Lencioni states that the next big wave in strategy, in his opinion, will be organizational health. Any thoughts on that? I guess I would go probably quite a bit further. I think that large organizations, as they've been structured and managed for, depending on how you count, the last hundred years or the last three or four millennia, have now become competitive liabilities. And I think a lot of leaders over the next few years are going to learn a new definition of hopelessness, and that's trying to compete in a networked world with a hierarchical organization. It simply cannot be done. So, you know, I ask any, any consultant, any management thinker, you know, if, if their core model of an organization still starts with something that looks like a hierarchy, like I just move on because I don't think they have any, anything interesting to say. Well, that's a really interesting topic. And let's delve a little deeper into that. So in 2011, you wrote an article for Harvard Business Review, lightly titled, First Fire All the Managers. <laughs> and in that article, you discuss the problems that hierarchies create and how one company fixed them with a self-management approach. So what's your current stance on hierarchy in organizations? Do you see it like it's, it's always a bad thing? Are there situations where you feel that hierarchies produce value? Or what's, what's your general stance? Well, a few thoughts, and it's, it's a good question, and it has to be answered in kind of a subtle way. By the way, I didn't choose the title for that article. Okay. <laughs> I thought it was needlessly provocative. Uh, I wanted, a, 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 I think my title was uh, How Do You Avoid the Management Tax? Uh, because <laughs> I, I believe that kind of that, that hierarchical organization represents a, a tax on human activity, not only in the sense that you have more layers than you need, but you just have more rules, more processes, things that wrap people up in red tape and prevent them from, from doing their, their best work every day. 
So I think the first question or the first thing I'd say is I think you have to distinguish between different sorts of hierarchy. So obviously large organizations are based on the notion of a formal hierarchy where decision rights uh, kind of are allocated at each level. Power trickles down. Big leaders are supposed to stretch, set strategy. They're the ones who appoint you know, junior leaders and so on. And so in a large company, there's, there's typically a single hierarchy, effectively a single hierarchy. And I think that's very, very dangerous. I think in a, in a very dynamic, you know, multifaceted world, it's dangerous to have an organization that, that structurally and preemptively empowers the few and disempowers the many, or to put it another way, kind of automatically assigns a very high coefficient of credibility to the views of some people rather than others. Because the fact of the matter is, given how fast the world is changing, how complex it is, that exceeds the cognitive limits of any small group of people. And I think what also happens is that those those managers end up being in positions where they're actually furthest from, for example, the customers and that and the interface to the customers. So they actually know the least about the actual business in some ways. Exactly. They are they are in many ways isolated, not only by that that distance, but often by by layers of management or managers who are inclined to play to their prejudices. So. You know, there's just a lot of things about hierarchy that make it ill-suited for the world we live in right now. Having said that, we need hierarchy, but I would say of a different sort. So if you think about it, the web is filled with natural hierarchies. So there are people on the web who have more followers than others, um, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, and so on. And sometimes they have more followers just because they're willing to show more of their anatomy, which is maybe not the best, best way of building a following. I'm not recommending that. But, but if you think about it on the web, power is very fluid. It is constantly moving towards people who create value and away from ones that aren't. In a formal hierarchy, by contrast, power is quite sticky because yep. it attaches to a position. So as long as, let's say, you're a senior vice president, you have power. And often you've been put in that role by a yet more senior executive. And so for that individual to say, you know, Gary's not doing a great job. That's a loss of faith. So, so often, you know, it pe people underperform for some period of time before somebody has the courage to say, this is not working and move that, that person out. So I think, you know, my model, and I see this in some very large successful organizations now, this is not theory, but my model is organizations are going to become multiple hierarchies and whose voice gets heard on any particular issue or subject depends on kind of a peer attested value. Who, who do we really think is the smartest person in the room on this? Because, you know, on every issue, we can't spend time, you know, uh, litigating who's the smartest and who gets to have the biggest share of voice. We have to just sometimes trust people and say, I think they know. But that has to come on the basis of experience. You know, there's a, um, there's a, venture, a venture capital company, sorry, a hedge fund company in the United States right now uh, run by Ray Dalio. It's, it's the largest hedge fund company in the world, Bridgewater. And they have a very interesting approach where over a period of time in every meeting and on every decision, you get to rate your colleagues based on their credibility on about 100 different subjects. And so at any point in a meeting, if I'm listening to you, I can say, yes, that like, I don't think that makes any sense. And I can say, I can downgrade you or I can upgrade you. So I think that's very smart. So they can show for every single staff member, 1,500 people, they can show a map of your credibility as judged by your peers. And, and that changes over time. And so I think we're going to move to something more like that rather than assuming 
that there's one person who has one title that's always the smartest person in the room. And actually, before you already said that that most companies currently, they have one hierarchy, which is the formal hierarchy. But I would actually say that uh, even those existing formal hierarchies, they actually do have the informal hierarchies within those companies. And they're actually, most often, they are these meritocracies uh, where actually it is based on your experience and your skills. And people actually do go to those informal networks, even though they should go through the formal Networks. Yeah, they're 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 ob- they're absolutely there, but we really haven't you know taken the next step, which is all right. Let's be serious about building a map of of personal competence across the organization. Let's think about where and how we allocate decision rights. Given that, let's think about how we make sure we have the right people in the room on the right settings. So the informal hierarchy has always been there, and of course, what's really changed is that for the first time, kind of ever you can now have lateral communication that's richer often than vertical communication. Because if if you go back and say, well, why did we create hierarchy in the first place? The answer is pretty simple. You know, 100, 1,000 years ago, information was very difficult to move. So the way you did it, you have 10 people report to one person who aggregates their information. Then you have another 10 that aggregated that level. You report it up. So the person at the top could genuinely say, I'm the only person here with a panoptical view. They were the, you know, they're the only one. Now that's 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 like just nonsense. And so it's interesting. We keep kind of layering in these new collaborative technologies, but we really haven't yet been willing to admit where all of this leads. And that is to the dissolution of the formal hierarchy. Yeah. So what do you think that existing hierarchical organizations should or could do to dampen the negative effects, the, the tax of hierarchy? Well, you know, it's that's the subject of my next book. But let me <laughs> let me toss out a few things. One, I think you have to be you have you actually have to start measuring the cost. So the first thing is you have to start measuring what I would call, you know, the bureaucrat you need a bureaucratic mass index, a BMI that kind of helps you understand, well, how many layers do we have? And uh, of course, a lot of the the costs of bureaucracy are invisible to most organizations. So how do you, how do you measure, for example, uh, decision lags because you have to go through so many approval levels? How do, you, how do you measure insularity because you have so many people who are, whose, whose roles are focused internally rather than on the customer? How do you manage conservatism because there's so few uh, incentives for risk-taking? So we've, we've started to build some measures there because the first thing is just like building a baseline and start to understand how much this is costing us. Um, we estimate across the OECD that excess bureaucracy costs about $9 trillion a year and lost economic output. That's a very, very uh, big number. But every company has to start measuring that for themselves. And, you know, the analogy I would use is a decade or two ago, very few companies reported on their environmental impact. Now, many businesses do. And if I'm a stakeholder and I understand that bureaucracy is probably the single greatest threat to an organization's capacity to adapt and evolve, then I really want to push the leadership team to report on that and tell me what kind of progress are you making to wring that out of your organization. So that, to me is is uh, the starting point. Yeah, so uh, that's that's a strategy if we're looking at the existing organizations. How about if you think about a company that's just about to start or they're starting their operations? How did they how, how should they start designing their organization so they kind of never end up in the situation where they have a have a big BMI? 
Well, I think the first thing is, as you grow, be very careful about bringing in senior leaders from traditional companies. <laughs> because what often happens is you get a young company that at some point, you know, it, it starts to become complicated and so on, that you think, I need to bring in the people who used to work for some, you know, large organization. But they, they bring with them that old model. I think what you have to do, and, I, and, and there are companies that are, that are being very thoughtful about, the Spotify is one of them, you have to start with a new set of principles. And the old management model, was, it was built on the principles of standardization, formalization, routinization, specialization. Some of that has value. But you need an offsetting set of principles around transparency, openness, speed, experimentation, meritocracy. And at every stage, you have to be really very conscious of where am I trading away those things in the interest of efficiency, in the interest of predictability or more operational uh, control? Where am I trading away units of flexibility or, and, and, and make, that, make that conscious so it doesn't happen by default? But there's some very interesting examples now of very large organizations that have managed, I think, to retain that entrepreneurial spirit in the midst of, of size. So there are enough examples out there. There's really no excuse. Okay, so moving back to the topic of strategy, where we kind of started, was that what's something about strategy that you you'd like everyone to understand? You know, I, for me, the most important thing is everybody has inside of them the capacity to be a great strategy innovator. It's not some dark art. It's not some magical genetic gift. You know, we, we tend to look at people like Daniel Eck or Elon Musk or, you know, late Steve Jobs and think, you know, they must be somehow uh, superhuman. They weren't. For all kinds of reasons, they had, typically by accident, but they had experiences growing up that taught them how to see the world in a different way. You know, we all, we all live in the same world. We have the same data around us. And yet some people see opportunities that are invisible to others. And you can teach people how to do this. You know, you can teach them how to become more alert to what's changing, the trends. You know, what's happening with additive manufacturing or machine learning or, you know, social media. But what's, what's changing that gives you leverage to do something new? You can teach them how to, to get at those deep, unarticulated customer needs that, that are, are now being ignored. So I think... You know, in, in, in my work, we've, we've trained hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people to be kind of strategic thinkers in that way. And, you know, I've seen $100 million businesses get spawned out of a unionized hourly employee in a plant. And so we need to, uh, to destroy this mystique that uh, strategy is something that starts at the top, that it's you know, it, it, it takes an MBA or some. No, it just takes a new way of thinking. It takes a curiosity, a way of thinking differently, and, and then being able ultimately to put that into some kind of a business model, which is just a skill you can teach. Great. So how about, are you ever frustrated with, with strategy being such an all-encompassing word with such a broad range of different definitions? I, I guess that's probably inevitable, like like any like organization or you know it's it is a big word. But I think if you boil it down, and, and everybody can have their preferred definition. You know, my my definition is strategy is something that gives you consistency over time, and contains the essence of how you're going to be different. Just those two things. Like what what do we do that builds that's consistent, and what is you know what makes this this different? You know, often when I'm you know, in many organizations, they think they have a strategy and don't. Uh, what they have is a plan. And, and one of my 
long-term annoyance is, is that we, we use the phrase strategic planning, which is a complete oxymoron. I mean, there's no such thing as, as like, you know, airline food or, or you know, British cuisine. Although, sorry, I shouldn't say that. British cuisine is, is pretty, pretty good uh, today. It wasn't so good when I first arrived in England. But, you know, planning is an essentially a mechanical activity. That's, that's, that's laying out, therefore, what steps, how do we program the resources, uh, you know, the milestones and so on. Strategy is an essentially creative act. To have a differentiated strategy, you have to start with differentiated insights. You have to know something or believe something or see something in the world that other people haven't seen. So that becomes the question. How do you generate a new insight or a, a, a collection of new insights? So when we're you know, working seriously on this problem with, with companies, we want to create game-changing strategies. The starting point is say, hey, let's go out and let's understand where strategies have converged, what industry rules are worth breaking. Let's understand what are the unarticulated needs that nobody is seeing. Let's understand what are the emerging trends that nobody in this industry is paying attention to. So in each of those categories, you're building a portfolio of new insights, and then you can start to mix them up, shake them up, and see, gee, if I put that, that insight about emerging trend, this insight about a need, something else, what do we see as an opportunity? So the, the, the kind of innovation that happens naturally inside the minds of, you know, of maybe a Richard Branson or a Jack Dorsey, you can actually, by, by building a, a, some portfolios of new insights, you, can, you can't quite make it a mechanical act, but you can dramatically increase the odds that you see something new and different just by bringing those insights together, mixing them and saying, well, what do you, what do you see there? This episode is sponsored by Exove. Exove is a digital growth company that helps companies look into the future and achieve growth by designing and creating visually attractive, user-friendly, and seamlessly working digital solutions. Their clients range from Neste and Fiskars to startups all over the globe. How do they do it? People at Exove take the time to understand their clients. They delve deep to figure out the business and the end users. This ensures that every solution is a great fit for the problem and stands the test of time. Exove people also love to experiment. And yes, they have their own lab. Exove Labs tests new technologies and ideas to bring new opportunities and novel value to their clients. And whatever Exove people do, they do it with a friendly and passionate attitude. So when you need a digital partner for growth, contact Exove. Go to exove.com to find out more. I'd actually want to try out a new segment for the podcast with you. Uh, I'd call this segment uh, Strong Opinions Weekly Held. So I love that concept. The idea behind it is that you form a strong, informed opinion on things or something, and then you just start stating those opinions out loud. And you especially state them out loud to people smarter than you. And then when you've stated it out, you listen. So the idea is that the opinions are also weakly held. So if you learn something, you simply change your opinion. <laughs> and, I, and I think the, uh, this is one of the fastest ways to learn. All right, I'll, I'll give it a go. So... Setting targets. I think target setting is overemphasized in companies, and most often targets create more problems than they solve. 
So basically any numeric target, especially with a bonus attached to it, attached to people achieving it, will lead to local optimization. And we should focus more of our time in making work more meaningful and intrinsically motivating. So agree, but maybe with some caveats or some nuances. I think there's a tendency in most organizations to overdefine targets. I was talking to uh, Jim Schnabel. Uh, he used to be the uh, co-CEO of SAP and now is the non-exec chairman of Maersk. And he said that when he left uh, SAP, the company had 50,000 KPIs, which is insane. <laughs> he would tell you it's insane, yeah. right? So that was an attempt, you know, this mistaken belief that if we can, if we can pre-program every metric all the way down, we basically can run the company by remote control. And of course, you know, often those metrics are not really attached to uh, customers or to, and, and so they spawn a lot of unhelpful uh, behavior. And there have been some spectacular examples of how that can go wrong. So I think, you know, the metrics have to be broad, but I, th I do think you need metrics. Those can be simply, you know, are, are we growing more profitable? It can be around, are we increasing our net promoter score with our customers? It can be, uh, you know, are our margins going up? So I think you have to have some broad indices of progress. But when we overspecify the goals, we fall into a conceit that we already know how to play the game. Yeah, because I think what happens is most of the metrics actually end up becoming proxy metrics. So they're not actually measuring th the things that, for example, are important to our customers. They're measuring something that we feel that internally within the organization that, that this is something that we want to be more efficient at. Yeah, let me, let me give you a classic example. And it created an enormous problem and a scandal. A large U.S. bank, Wells Fargo, one of the biggest put enormous pressure on its frontline people to cross-sell products. I, in fact, I can't remember, but I think they said every customer should have at least eight different products from, well, I don't know what even those eight things can be. I can't even imagine. But in any case, you put that metric on people, you turn up the incentives around it, and you find that employees are creating dummy customers with dummy accounts simply because that's how they've been pushed. So I think that's why, you know, my, my belief is that the essence of, of leadership at every single level is being in a position where I have the information to make smart trade-offs. But in most organizations, we haven't given people that frontline P&L. We don't expect them to behave as business people. And so we end up with these very simplistic, highly synthetic measures that bear almost no, no connection with reality. And we hope that, it, that, that when they sum up, they actually produce great performance and often they don't. Next opinion. Structures drive behavior. So if we create an organizational structure where teams are isolated from each other, we'll get silos. And even if we have a company offsite to discuss the importance of collaboration, it won't matter. So it's the structures that we have in place that actually show your organization's true values. And it's the structures that actually drive behavior in the company. So I think there's an enormous risk that in building formal structures and, and making them deep and, and uh, uh, permanent, uh, you're, you're essentially saying, I know how to organize the resources of the organization against a set of opportunities. More than that, you know, in any structure, you're optimizing some trade-offs versus others. So if I have like, let's say a global product organization, what I'm saying is what really matters is having consistent products, consistent brands and technology all over the world. And what matters less is being responsive to local needs. Well, 
what I see now emerging as an alternative structure is self-organizing teams that work across organizational boundaries where people come together to solve problems. A great example of this is a Mexican cement company, Semex. They're number two or three in the world in the cement business. They literally have thousands of self-organized communities that, that work to identify interdependencies and problems that cut across the organizational structure and solve them. So this is a company like most cement companies. It grew up through a lot of local acquisitions. Uh, cement is mostly a local for local business. And one day, a bunch of mid-level marketing people all over the world woke up and said, you know, why don't we have any global brands? Because increasingly, we are selling to global customers, and we need to leverage the kind of technology value propositions we have around different products. And, and so a group of mid-level managers got together online in a community, create the company's first global brand without any chief marketing officer. So I think what we're what you're going to see is structure has to be downgraded and the organization has to be very malleable and able to reorganize around problems that don't fit structure. Yeah. Uh, next one, which is on experimentation. Because I think that we're too afraid to experiment. We're, we're too afraid to actually look at the market and, and what it's telling us. Because we prefer relying on our own assumptions and staying at the office compared to going out and actually experimenting things with our customers. You know, you can't see the future if you're sitting in an office. You can't see the future if you're talking to the same people. And in many organizations, particularly at the top, you base, you know, the gene pool is basically a stagnant pond. You have people who come from the same schools. They've talked. They've been in those jobs for years. They can finish each other's sentences. And so if you want to have any chance of seeing the future, you have to be looking in new places where you have the chance to be surprised. You have to be talking to new people that you've, you know, are, are outside of your experience base. You have to be asking new questions. And most leaders dramatically underinvest in doing that. And then they're kind of surprised when something happens and, you know, gee, like who, who, who knew? Well, actually, a lot of people knew you didn't know. And so, you know, one of the things I've learned is that, that companies miss the future for two reasons. One is they weren't paying attention. They weren't out on the fringe where change was happening. And equally, it wasn't that the future was unpredictable, but it was unpalatable. You know, it was just like too hard to face up to the implications of that. So instead, we make up some story about why it's not important or it's going to take longer. Or I can safely, safely ignore it. Yeah. So we stay at the office and, and <laughs> we'll make up that story. Yeah. So uh, final opinion, transparency. Smart people make good decisions when they have the relevant data available to them. So our organizations need to be transparent and people need to have access to data. Yeah, I, th I think it's hard to argue with that. You know, I think there was a time, hopefully long past, where being a manager meant that you had proprietary information. It meant somehow that you knew more than others and, uh, and that you would control and sometimes hoard that information. And I think, you know, that's just, that's like no, no longer the case. And so I think, you know, leaders at whatever level today, Whatever information you're using to make that decision, it needs to be available to everybody. You need to be able to let other people challenge you on that. And, um, you know, hopefully we're kind of already there, maybe not. But I think transparency is, is, is more generally just a hugely important thing in organizations. You know, we, we, we should be transparent around pay. There should be no mystery about who gets paid what and why. No, no you know, I, I believe salary information ought to be visible across the whole company what the CEO spends on aircraft every year or on executive away days, that should be 
visible across the whole company. You know, transparency is an amazing way of, of having people take responsibility. And, and it's a much more powerful mechanism of control than any uh, policies or rules or anything else. Okay, closing off, final question. What's your personal strategy now? So, now, so what's your, what are you planning to do next? I hate to say it because it sounds maybe kind of grand and, and, I, and, and I don't feel like, I don't feel very grand as an individual. But my, my goal is to really think through how do we uninstall bureaucracy in organizations around the world? And, you know, it's, it's a daunting task because bureaucracy is, is very familiar to people. Most of us grew up in and around organizations that fit that template. As I said, I think it's becoming an increasingly liability. And, and, and a lot of leaders you know, recognize that. Uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, chairman chief executive of J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, has called it a disease. Um, Charlie Munger, vice chairman at Berkshire Hathaway, says it's a cancer. Uh, the, 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 the CEO of, of Walmart has said something similar. So I meet a lot of executives who claim to be enemies, but I've met very few who say, let's kill it. And I think that's what we, th that's what we have to do. We have to kill it. And um, and we do have models. It's not that it's not that we have no 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 reference points. But the the harder problem is if you think about it, bureaucracy is this massive multiplayer game, in which millions of leaders around the world have have grown up learning to play it, and they've learned how do you accumulate bureaucratic power. They've learned how to hoard resources, how to you know guard their fiefdom, um, how to uh, take care of their own people, um, how to manipulate the numbers, how to dress up the data, all the things you need to do to succeed in a bureaucracy. And, and frankly, in many ways, you know, to play the game as individuals, we end up behaving in ways that we would never behave with our family or our friends. But, you know, it's like, well, that's how the game is played. Bureaucracy is not just, you know, one organization. There's kind of a whole a bureaucratic consensus that extends to consulting companies and business schools. You know, and in many ways, uh, business schools, the, the, the value proposition has been that if you give us your, your tuition money, we'll give you some kind of fast track into the management elite. Well, what if there's no more management elite? Because, you know, here's, here's a, hopefully for your listeners a little bit of an interesting thought. When we started creating kind of this, this bureaucratic, this class of bureaucrats, the managerial elite, as I, I call them, a hundred and some years ago, at that time, administrative competence was in short supply. We were building, for the first time, these very large organizations doing complex things like, you know, Ford's huge plant on the River Rouge in Detroit. And you needed this new class of people who could do the budgets and who could manage people and establish performance standards and so on. Let me argue that all of that work is now pretty much a commodity. And at minimum, you're probably going to be able to get software to do it or just, you know, you'll have an algorithm. You'll be able to get the numbers, transparency. And so yet we built this whole edifice on the, on, on, on the idea that what's really rare is administrative skill. And I would argue, mm, not so much, not anymore. Um, and, and here would be kind of a, a closing thought on that. When you go back over the last 50 years, you find a lot of amazing experiments where companies have defied the bureaucratic consensus and have had extraordinary success from that. There's, there's a part of, of, of GE, which is now in some difficulty, the company, not this part, but there's There's, there's a, a, an aviation plant uh, that assembles the biggest jet engines in the world in GE. And for decades now, they've been running that plant with a one to 400 span of control. It's small self-organizing teams, one plant leader. 
And you ask yourself, why has that sat there as this isolated, this enclave, and not spread to the rest of GE? Why do these examples come and go and almost never take off? You know, in, in years past, I wrote about W.L. Gore, amazing material science company, famous for Gore-Tex, as the company's a lattice, they, people choose their own leaders. Tens of thousands of people have visited Gore. Business schools of case studies have been written about him, and now they're writing about, uh, you know, about hire. I'll have an article on hire in, in the next issue of Harvard Business Review. And yet, you know, these examples come and go. And the only conclusion I, I can come to is that people in power are generally reluctant to give up that power. And so I think you have to think about bureaucracy almost in the same context, that it is a, a deeply embedded social system that prevents millions, billions of people from bringing the best of themselves to work every day. And there's enormous data to back that up. And so if you go back and you say, well, how do those other social systems change? They didn't change with a utilitarian argument. It wasn't somebody who said, well, you know, the economy's going to grow faster if we get rid of slavery, or we're going to unleash this whole merchant class if we get rid of aristocracy. What happened was a few brave souls stood up and said, this is wrong. It started with a moral argument, not an economic argument. And I think that's what we have to say uh, you know, about bureaucracy. We have to say that every human being deserves the opportunity to develop and use their creative gifts and that any human-made uh, um, barriers that we put in the way of that are wrong. Because I think unless you start with that moral argument, there's no way you will have the patience, the courage, uh, the fortitude to actually take on a problem that's this big. But, you know, the good news is every time you get a small win, you see human beings that get turned on, that get excited, that have the chance to contribute. And, and what I've learned is that you don't have to be a coder and you don't have to work in tech or Silicon Valley. Every job can be a good job with high pay, with high productivity, if you create an environment in which people can grow and, and, and use their, their innate problem-solving skills. So, like, that's kind of my quest of how do you unshackle humanity, uh, you know, one employee at a time, one company at a time. I don't expect to make a lot of progress, but, you know, life is too short to work on inconsequential problems. Thanks for listening. If you liked the episode, help me out and share it. Normally, we release episodes every two weeks, but the next episode will be out in three due to some important stuff happening at our company that currently takes a lot of my time. Hopefully, I can update you on it soon enough. So tune in again in three weeks. <laughs>